Blog Talk Radio. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as tired as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Tell you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Cancer Show. That's hot. Hello there, children. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Zachary. Monday, November 9th, and we are once again live on the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adults with cancer. We are your friendly neighborhood weekly social webcast, finally giving that voice. To nearly 5 million young adults affected by cancer. Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Well, get busy living because the Stupid Cancer Show is on the air. Welcome to tonight's broadcast, my friends. We are here to change the world. One chemo infusion at a time and share all of our collective craftness. This broadcast is a program of the I'm for This Cancer Foundation, one of the nation's leading grassroots advocates for the next generation of survivors and co-survivors. It's all about us, folks, and we are bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight and sticking it to a system that's ignored us for far too long. You see, the past three decades of cancer progress have failed the next generation, so there's no reason to think the next 30 will be any different unless change happens right here, right now. Join us and be that change that needs to happen. Hell, we invented Google, Facebook, Twitter, we kept Sanjaya on American Idol all those weeks. We can do anything we want. This is Generation Cancer, our fight and our duty to give back to our own. We have the sheer numbers, the voting power, and the influence because remission is not an excuse for a cure, and survivorship is all that really matters. Last week's show, Stupid Cancer Brain Fog, one of our most listened to broadcasts in Stupid Cancer Show history, with Kate Goldberger, Cammy Dean, Kate Burton, and Adele Davidson co-author of an amazing book called Your Brain After Chemo. You can check it out at stupidcancershow.com in the archives. Tonight's show is Stupid Testicular Cancer, which I believe last year we called the Testicular Cancer-tacular, but that got too many syllables. Anyway, in our spotlight, returning champion Brian LaBelle, young adult survivor of testicular cancer, performer, writer, um, and the creator of Fun with Cancer Patients. Returning champion, Scott Joy, young adult testicular cancer survivor, administrator of the tccancer.com forums, and the forum administrator of the livestrong.com testicular topics. And in his debut on the Stupid Cancer Show, but not the Stupid Cancer Show chat room, world-class Olympic swimmer, motivational speaker, and testicular cancer survivor, Eric Shanto, on tonight's show. So hello, my friends, and welcome to yet another... Fun for the exciting romp through the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show. 
and a stupid cancer welcome to all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network, especially anyone from Chi-Town who attended a fabulous young adult event at the Palace Grill Saturday night with me and Johnny Emmerman. Wonderful, wonderful event. Coming at you live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. I am your host, Matthew Zachary, a 13-year, coming up on 14-year young adult pediatric brain cancer survivor. Joining me live in the studio, as always, our chief cancer anarchist, Jack Buffard. Hello, Jack. What's up, Matty boy? How you been? I've been good, man. How you doing? Um, exactly. Just, just living the dream one day at a time. <laughs> Jack will be monitoring. <laughs> I can't say with a straight face, though. Jack will be monitoring our live concurrent interactive chat room. So if you have something to say, let him have it. And as always, it is my esteemed pleasure to uh, introduce my official partner in crime here on the Stupid Cancer Show, hailing from the windy city of Chi-Town, Chicago, fellow young adult survivor and author of the acclaimed book, and I do mean acclaimed, Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s, the lovely, talented, blogtastic, and spectacular Carol Rosenthal. Hello, Carol! Hello! Hello, Jack and Matthew! Hello, Carol. How you doing? I'm I'm great. I'm I'm really excited. Um, tomorrow I'm going to be a guest blogger on the New York Times. Really? Yeah. And, What's your topic? Well, they asked me to write about, shockingly enough, young adult cancer. Um, dum da dum. Dum da dum. And you know, I was really, I was so provoked by our conversation last week about stupid cancer brain fog. And I was just kind of like chomping at the bit, like, oh, I don't want to be co-host. I want to be guest. I want to talk about my own stupid cancer brain fog. So I wrote um, a bit about that for my blog tomorrow. And, um, yeah, just kind of what it's like to feel like an old fart before your time and how right. it you know, <laughs> can, they can do interesting things to one's intellectual self-esteem. Um, so yeah, I, I hope everyone will go check it out. Uh, take take a look at it tomorrow. It's it's um, at the Well Blog at, at New York uh, on the New York. Well, you're Times. always on the Well Blog. You leave comments on the Well Blog like every day because in my Google alerts under Carol Rosenthal, it keeps popping up every time you leave a comment, and you leave the most compelling comments. I, I watch what some of the other people. There's like a bell curve of intelligence with the level of you know comments that come out of really good pieces there. Yours are always obviously at the 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 ninety ninth percentile, but like people respond to your comments almost more than they respond to the article sometimes. Well, that's interesting to know because I don't usually go back and read the other comments. Oh, okay, no, maybe I'm doing I just start doing that. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I think it is a really fantastic blog. Actually, I mean, it's one of the blogs that I follow religiously every day. There's a lot on there about running now, which I don't pay attention to because I'm very lazy and I don't run. But um, aside from the running, it's just a great way to educate yourself about different healthcare issues that are going on. And sometimes they're like really wonky things that she writes about in a way that's really easy to understand. Um, and they have like these really fascinating guest bloggers on, this really great woman who is an oncology nurse and such an exquisite writer. And, yeah, I really I enjoy commenting on the blog, and, and I'm excited to have a piece on there tomorrow. So. Absolutely extraordinary. Congratulations. But so, all right, between Fresh Air and now the New York Times Well blog, what hill are you waiting to, climb, to cross next? Oh, I'm not, I'm not waiting to cross any hills. 
<laughs> I'm just sitting here napping, waiting for good opportunities <laughs> to come to me right now. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I've 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 been working too hard this year. I'm I'm kicking back a little bit at the moment. So it's like if you don't want to move, just wait for continental drift. Oh wow! I've been waiting a I, long yeah. time for that. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about this. Um, I don't know what you'd call it, like a social political event that you hosted at your house. That I'm sorry I couldn't make because the healthcare debate rages on. Of course, and it, it's of of paramount uh, relevance to our listenership and to the entire young adult movement. Um, can you tell us about why you hosted this, what it was about, and uh, what you found from, it was almost like you did a minor social focus group of your peers. Yeah, it was a really cool experience. Um, so basically it was like a fundraiser in a box, and the box was my living room. And um, it was really fun. And I baked some really amazingly decadent desserts, and we kind of all had a little, like, sugar high. And then um, we had this really great conversation with Jonathan Vanderbrook, who's the director of the Campaign for Better Healthcare. And it was great because I got to introduce him and, in doing so, relay some of the stories that I hear on a daily basis from young adults who are living with cancer in dealing with the insanity of our healthcare system and being underinsured or uninsured. And, you know, just stories about like people who are cutting their pain pills in half to redose because they can't afford to get any more of them or they've been dropped from insurance. You know, these things, these stories that are also familiar to us. And it's really potent and powerful to tell these stories outside of the cancer community so that other people know what it's like dealing with an actual health crisis. Right in the midst of this horrible climate of, you know, the health care in this country. And and then Jonathan went on to explain a lot about what's happening in health care and the ways that people can um, make a difference in becoming involved with phone calling. And he also just like, did a really good job of demystifying what's going on. It, it can be so hard to really follow this healthcare debate because, let's face it, like our government system is not the most straightforward with how legislation gets created and passed out of committee and then from one house into the Senate and then back together and approvals and vetoes and votes and it's really confusing so it was really nice to have sort of like a schoolhouse rock version of like how we could fix health care um, and then of course it was so exciting because on Saturday night was when the bill was actually voted on so it's sort of like you know when you have a New Year's party and you're like getting ready for the apple to drop in Times Square and I felt like you know we were just all you know sitting on the edge of our seats waiting to hear what happened with the vote and of course we're very relieved to hear that um, it did pass in the House and that it is the largest health care reform change that has been voted on, that's, that's even gotten out of committee and into the House and voted on in the House since uh, Medicare was created in the 1960s. Wow. In the 1960s. So this is, it, was the, it was the most monumental health care reform bill that's passed through the house in over 40 years so that's pretty important that is really important i just queued this up i want to see if this is the right clip let's see here Whew. you sure gotta climb a lot of steps to get to this capitol building here in washington <laughs> well i wonder who that sad little scrap of paper is 
I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Remember this? Well, it's no. a long, yeah. long journey to the Capitol City. Back <laughs> to watch cartoons on Saturday morning? Yeah, these are like public service announcements, like like childhood uh, themed. Rock. Yeah, Schoolhouse Rock. If it didn't Junction, come up between. Junction, what's your function? Yes, Conjunction Junction and uh, Interplanet Janet. Oh, I don't remember that. I remember the more you knows. No, that's like those came on between yeah. Pee Wee's Playhouse and Smurfs when I was growing up. Right, exactly. Yeah, to all our listeners, that was Schoolhouse Rock. How a bill becomes a law. Just Google uh, YouTube. I'm just a bill, and it pulls it up. Man, everything's on YouTube these days. It is. Yeah, and no, Inter- Interplanet Janet was uh, Interplanet Janet. She's a galaxy girl. It was all about the solar system. Well, I really, I, I'm putting a challenge out there to someone to make a schoolhouse rock about the current health care debate. No, there is. There, someone already parodied how uh, how a bill becomes a law on YouTube. I don't know what the link is, but I'm sure you could just type in um, "I'm just a bill parody" in YouTube. I'm sure you'll find it. Well, you know, right now is you know in in the um, story of how a bill becomes a law, the next step is getting it passed in the Senate, and it's really important that that happens uh, before the break, uh, well, end of December. So, you know, we're going to be working really, really, really hard to make that happen. The part that I don't understand, and again, I don't claim to be any political whatsoever, is that the Democrats have a majority in the House, and how is it possible? that this bill passed by only five votes? Well, I think part of the reason is that there are a lot of Democrats who are afraid to vote the way that people elected them to vote because they feel beholden to the more conservative constituents in their area, and they're convinced that you know, if they actually take a progressive stance that they're going to be voted out of the office, which I actually think that the opposite is true. Um, that I think that we elect people into office for reasons, and if we're electing Democratic officials with progressive viewpoints, we want them to vote that way. But my understanding is once they realized that they reached, that they were going to reach the number of enough votes to actually pass it, then uh, – Nancy Pelosi said to those folks who were sort of on the fence simply because of the way they wanted to look to their constituents of not being too progressive, she said to them, okay, you know, if, if you want to save face and not vote for this because you think it's a smart political maneuver for you, go for it. We have enough votes now. So um, that there were probably about 19 other votes that we certainly could have gotten, but once we realized that it was safe sailing, she said to them, "Do what you need to do." Wow, that's mm-hmm. so it's just so shameful. Yeah, yeah, it really is. So, and I, I just want to send a huge thank you to Melissa Dean and Daniel Lipinski, who are both in the Chicago area. And Chicago actually had the Chicago metropolitan area actually had like a huge influence on this getting passed because we had, I think, five of these representatives who are Democrats but were wanting to vote like Republicans, and it was really scary, and we've been trying to put a lot of pressure on them, and it worked, and they were great. I mean, they totally showed up, and they totally voted the right way, and hats off to them. We should be, you know, as many phone calls as we make, being angry and threatening to our representatives that they should vote the way that we want to, we need to call them and thank them, too, when they vote the right way. I, I, 
Of course. I mean, my I, I, I had a question for you specifically about the who uh, were there any other cancer survivors at your house on Saturday? No, I don't think so. That's because I, was I wasn't invited. <laughs> right. Oh, I would right. have been. <laughs> you were halfway across the country, Jack. Sorry. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, I think I might have been. I might have been the only cancer person. Wow. So obviously, I mean, I guess final thoughts before I get to the news is just like the healthcare, and, and just correct me if I'm wrong. I, again, I, I come from all sides here. I don't quite know all the the, the nooks like you do so brilliantly. But for me, at least, you, one would think that the under 40 generation, regardless of what's wrong with you, if there's nothing wrong with you, we should be the ones most supportive of health care reform public options. Uh, is that not the case? Well, you know, what surprises me the most, I mean, I actually think that young adults are incredibly supportive because, you know, uh, over a third of people in this country in their early 20s are making less than $10 an hour <laughs> or working jobs that don't give us health insurance benefits. I think young adults do get it. The thing that startles me time and time and time again is that the cancer community doesn't get it. Right. And wow. that until the day before, the day before the vote, I don't know of a single cancer organization that publicly supported the bill and had an active call to action for its constituents to know who to call, to explain to them why they should support this bill, to explain how it will impact them as a cancer patient. And that's just, it's, it's terrible. It's just inexcusable. And I was so glad that the day beforehand, the American Cancer Society along with the um, AARP and the American Medical Association, they did come out um, in favor of it. But it's like, come on, guys. I mean, they're, It's a little it, too late. It's a little too late. And also, I mean, the entire cancer community is such a strong cultural influencer in this yes. country. Everybody knows somebody with cancer. And we're so connected and we're so networked. And that the cancer community did not get up off their ass and do this on behalf of cancer patients, I'm scratching my head over that one. But, you know, it's never too late. <laughs> we still have to work on the Senate. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Well, we own the Senate, too. But, again, we're going to have that same problem where, like, these, these pussy-footed Democrats just don't want to – like, and the, the percentage of – this is my last perception here because I, I want to get the news – it seems like the minority are the people that are opposed to the health care reform, but that they get like 90% of the attention. Why? Yeah, because it's, they have huge coffins that say, don't kill grandma on them at the protests and stuff. Oh, okay. Then, so it's, they're making the wrong kind of loud noise. They're they, making fun of the non-existent death panels. Or they're bringing attention to them, I should say. Right, right, right. They're not making fun of this thing. Yeah, the funny thing is that the death, the quote-unquote death panel um, was proposed by a Republican. Lovely. Nobody ever talked about that. But yeah. Right. Was, yeah. Well, on that note, speaking of death panels, let's get to Jack reading the news. <laughs> here I am. All righty. And here we go. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am.
Okay, during this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, Jack announces worthy news stories to our adoring listeners to inform them about the latest and greatest in free young adult programs, services, events, projects, and other stuff. If you have something upcoming that you would like to hear broadcast by Jack during this part of the show, please fax it to us at 877-794-6902 or email Jack at jack at i2y.com. Take it away, buddy. Thanks, Pally Boy, and here is your stupid cancer news. The Yak CC is back, introducing the resurgence of Yak CC, a young adult survivor support community made possible by our friends at Smith Farm. Please join them on the first Tuesday of every month from 6.30 to 8.30 to p.m. for various group events and wellness activities. All events are held at Smith Farm located on U Street Northwest in Washington, D.C. And for more information, please call area code 202-483-8600. They actually made me aware today of two upcoming events. Sunday, November 22nd, they are having an outing to see Disney's A Christmas Carol in 3D. And on Friday, December 11th, they are going ice skating at the National Gallery of Art, which I guess is different from have taken like your, your Heelys, you know, the little roller shoes that you run through the art gallery and then just zip down the hall. Just read the news. <laughs> so anyway, that's Yak uh, CC. Hey, Midwesterners, on Saturday, November 14th in Madison, Wisconsin, Carol Rosenthal will be the keynote speaker at Breast Cancer Recovery's 10th Annual Conference Sharing the Knowledge, Resource for Recovery. She'll be talking about embracing life after cancer and will also lead a special cancer and acupressure workshop. Don't have breast cancer? Well, that's okay. Neither does Carol. All survivors, family members, and healthcare professionals are welcome, and scholarships are available. For more information, visit www.bcrecovery.org. The Cook's Children's Adult Group Annual Retreat is being held January 29th through the 31st, 2010. For more information on this retreat, contact Lisa Bashmore at 682-885-2125. Events.i2y.com is the official social calendar of the Omsi Young for This Cancer Foundation. Head on over to events.i2y.com to see an event going on in your area. Are you a young adult cancer survivor who would like to begin an exercise program? If so, contact Santina Horowitz at area code 401-793-8124. Or you can email Santina at shorowitz at lifespan.org. The Leukemia Lymphoma Society of Long Island is hosting a young adult get-together at Bertucci's on Merrick Avenue in Westbury on Monday, November 23rd at 7 p.m. Come meet other young adults diagnosed with cancer. Chat and get to know each other. All young adult survivors are invited. For information, please contact Karen DeMaro at 631-752-8500. Our friends at Cancer Care are offering their Wake Up, Your Life is Waiting, a program for young adult cancer survivors. Thursday, November 19th from 5.30 to 7.30 at Cancer Care in New York City. Other cancer care programs actively going on are Living with Cancer for those in active treatment, Life After Cancer for those post-treatment, Young Adults Loss of a Parent, Young Women with Breast Cancer, Young Adult Individual Grief Counseling, and Young Adult Caregiver for all diagnoses and relationships. Head on over to cancercare.org or contact Jay Larson at cancercare.org. That's Julie Larson, Jay Larson at cancercare.org. Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s 
is the fabulous book written by our very own Super Cancer co-host, Carol Rosenthal. Everything changes. That's the sugarcoating off the young adult cancer experience. And for more information, visit everythingchangesbook.com. And finally, we have Live On, Spur Banking by Mail. If you are a young adult male who needs to do spur banking before you start treatment, head on over to liveonkit.com. Live spur banking by mail is made possible by our good friends at Fertile Hope. And for all your fertility needs, head on over to fertilehope.org. And that, my friends, is your stupid cancer news. All righty, Jack. Well done. Thank you, sir. Before we get to uh, before we get to Brian, I just wanted to make one other announcement uh, to the cancer world out there. This weekend on Friday night, the Wellness Community and Gilda's Club formally merged into a brand new organization called the Cancer Support Community. If you go to gildasclub.org or thewellnesscommunity.org, uh, you will be redirected to their new brand. Uh, I think they're going to both uh, coexist as Gilda's Club and Wellness Community Presents the uh, Cancer Support Community, uh, but that's what they're doing now, and uh, I do believe they are set to nationalize some young adult programs and, and uh, standardize the ways that they communicate with organizations like ours. So uh, check them out. We fully support them. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club are now the Cancer Support Community. And uh, with that, let's move on to our, uh, our, our first guest. What time is it? Alrighty, Brian LaBelle, returning champion, is a New York-born, London-based performer and artist. His work focuses on the body, and in particular, bodies which are isolated, politicized, medicated, and in the need of extra love. Paul, his first performance, which was about having testicular cancer, toured extensively in over 50 cities internationally. Other performances include Hold My Hand and We're Halfway There and Love Felt. He is currently the program director for Fun with Cancer Patients, funded by the Welcome Trust. Joining us tonight, Brian LaBelle. Hello, Brian. All righty. Hello. Uh, thank you so much for having me on the show again. Uh, I am going to be reading a new piece I have just recently premiered called An Appreciation. When I performed it live, I performed it uh, twice, uh, I asked audience members to medically appreciate my genitals and to write a one-word description. Uh, I didn't, of course, tell them beforehand that I am a survivor of stage 3 metastatic testicular cancer. Uh, the words I have received thus far uh, after my live performance have been hot, bumpy, squishy, unique, apricots, comforting, squishy, warm, big, and fan-fucking-tastic. So, that said, this is an appreciation. In the eight years since I had my right testicle removed, I have pretty much forgotten what it feels like to have anything but one testicle. This is a perspective I'm mostly comfortable with, and one, if I'm honest, that developed without too much resistance. I had never really thought about what it felt like to have two testicles, until, of course, I noticed that one of them was cancerous. So, when I reached under my hospital gown on November 6, 2001, to feel my new crotch, it just felt, well, normal. Well, shaved, but shaved and normal. To myself, I could never really appreciate a difference. Perhaps I did when I looked in a mirror and saw a slight lopsidedness in my scrotum, but rarely else, to myself. Outwardly, however, I felt freakish, 
imagining potential lovers to be frightened, worried, freaked out, or judgmental about what they would appreciate in my crotch. Before my testicle removal, only 11 people had interfaced with my genitals in a meaningful way. Lily, Aviva, Katie, Vadim, J David, Nelson, Rolando, Miko, Robert, Jane, and Jocelyn. Only three of these people, Vadim, Robert, and Rolando, interfaced with my genitals both before and after the removal of my right testicle. I don't think they noticed a difference, but also I never really asked them. In those first few years, the thrill of pants coming off was dampened by the threat of pants coming off, and how it looked, and what it felt like, and the reaction I might expect to receive. But eventually this changed. I don't know if I matured, or grew more confident, or more slutty, or just too lazy to expend the energy feeling both thrilled and threatened, but I now find myself without this worry. We're all worried about something when our pants come off, but for eight years... I think I felt my fears were more objectively legitimate than other people's. And this is not to say that there are not moments when I don't bristle. I still do bristle. I want to lick your balls, Brian. I want to lick your balls, Brian. Cock and balls, cock and balls. I bristle. An occasional bristle, but that's pretty much it. Until recently. When, for the first time in eight years, a man with a beautiful smile and without a shred of irony or mocking in his eyes said, So, Brian... What does it look like? My pants came off instantly, and there was no threat, only thrill. The thrill, however, was not sexual, but, if I can say it without sounding too cheesy, emotional. The thrill was not that this man thought me sexy with my scar and my lopsided scrotum, or that for the first time a man literally invoked cancer to get my pants off. No. It was that in this moment I completely recognized my journey from threat to thrill. It was as if someone turned to me and said, close your eyes, Brian, and try to imagine yourself eight years ago, what you looked like, what your body felt like, how it felt to touch someone, and how it felt to be touched. And if you'll humor me, before I finish and turn the show back to you, uh, I would just ask people who are listening to close your eyes and try to imagine yourself eight years ago, what you looked like, what your body felt like, how it felt to touch someone, and how it felt to be touched. Even if I could remember what it felt like to have two testicles, enough else has grown since then. One comes a long way in eight years. I think I'm just starting to appreciate that. Thank you so much. Alrighty. That was some pretty intense stuff right there. Gotta love Brian. Yeah. He's getting very deep these days, Brian. Over there in London, working on his performance PhD. He's getting, he's kind of like moving from the comedy man to the, you know, pretty incredible. cancer patient. He's amazing. <clears throat> he's great. Well, Scott's late for calling in, so we have an opportunity to answer a question from the chat room, which came to you, Carol. And I believe it had to do with uh, what are the best ways that, I think I'm paraphrasing here, but what are the best ways that people can talk to their friends about believing in that health care is necessary? Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked this because I'm like sitting here typing it. And, you know, I totally suck at multitasking. So I'm like, eh, trying to type out this thing. Yeah. So um, what, I was, what I was trying to respond to that great question that was asked um, 
You know, I really think that one of the most convincing arguments that I have ever heard has come from John Suffren, who is the, I'm going to get his title wrong, he's either the CEO or the CFO or the CMO of the American Cancer Society. And he has this very riveting quote where he says that 60, 60% of cancer mortalities in this country could be avoided if we had greater access to health care. That is unbelievable. And that's not coming from like a real progressive organization. This is coming from the American Cancer Society. And there was a, a study done this year by, uh, I think it was the Kaiser Family Foundation and NPR and Harvard, and they were looking at who do Americans trust for their information about cancer care. And 74% of Americans turn to the American Cancer Society, know the American Cancer Society, think of it as a trustworthy name. So if you're just talking you know, to friends or family, chances are that many of them are going to consider the American Cancer Society as a really authoritative voice. And that the American Cancer Society is saying, hey, you know, there are so many problems with access to care. And this is an organization that represents people who are really critically ill. They're not going to be voting for some you know, bill that's going to jip doctors and make the whole system go belly up. You know, this is the American Cancer Society, and they're saying our healthcare system is so broken that these patients who are so in need and dying of cancer, 60% of them could actually be saved from death if they could afford to access the care that's already available and treatments that are already available for cancer. And I I can't say as I've heard a much more convincing argument than that. And for some reason that's not enough um of an argument, is it? I think it is. I think that we just need to tell it to more people. You know, I think we just need to get that that message out there and I think that there you know, I think part of it is there are going to be people who always want to argue about this. There are going to be people whose minds are never going to change. Let's not focus on that. Let's focus on people who would actually be interested if they knew this information and engaged about it, but maybe they don't have a friend who they can talk to about it, or maybe nobody's brought it up, or maybe the information is just too overwhelming and too confusing. I think there are a lot of people who would very gladly be on our side if we just start talking about that message and having these conversations. So I don't know. I'm not interested in locking horns with the teabaggers. Um, so... I I think that there there are a, a lot of people out there who who really are who really um would be very receptive to this message. I'll try to um I'll try to as the show goes on try to find a link um to you know a place online where where that information is and I'm also going to put up a link here for um the campaign for better healthcare. They're an Illinois organization, but they have really fantastic basic information about what the public option means and how to take action on a national level. And and they really present this information. If you dig into their website, you can find some really good information sheets um, that kind of dispels myths and tells what it's like. And I don't think that they're too, you know, 
rosy-eyed or overly optimistic that, you know, this plan is going to save every healthcare problem we have in the United States. It's not, but it really is the best that we can do that's going to change the most people's lives, and um, it's important. Well, um, I don't think I could have said it any – I don't think I could have said it at all, but if I could, I don't think I could have said it any better. Uh, but now for the absolute most crass uh, transition ever, speaking of uh, teabaggers, let's continue our conversation about testicular cancer. <laughs> and, I think that uh, was a great segue. And uh, let's, let's announce our, our second guest here. All right. Okay. A mild-mannered enterprise architect by day and a cancer teaching survivorship advocate by night. Scott Joy is the forum administrator for TC Cancer and a dedicated Livestrong volunteer. He is a six-year testicular cancer survivor diagnosed at age 39. Despite having two daughters in high school and an 11-year-old twin, 11-year-old twin son, he considers himself an honorary young adult, and we accept him as an honorary young adult, even though he was diagnosed at 39. He lives in Stratham, New Hampshire, with no one else but that state is empty where he sings tenor and enjoys endurance cycling, long walks on the beach, and chatting with Jack Rippard. Please welcome, back to the show, returning champion Scott Joy. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell him about our chatting. I, I don't remember uh, putting that in the bio. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that got added late. <laughs> don't lie to everybody, Scott. Come on. <laughs> no, 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 not me. Hey, happy, no- happy Movember. Happy Movember. Thanks. Thanks. Everyone's asking me, uh, Jack, I don't know why you're not doing it because you have no friends, but I, everyone asking me why I am not growing a mustache because I have a full beard. And the answer is because if I shaved everything to grow a mustache, my wife would divorce me. <laughs> and I think that's much more important than supporting my, my, my face for the cause. Yeah, I've also been right. trying to grow facial hair since 1989, and I have not yet succeeded. I'm actually going to agree with that. I've known you for almost two years now. You've never had facial hair. <laughs> not longer than a day and a half or right. two days. Wow. I'm nine uh, days into mine. I, I can't wait to shave it off. I'm seeing all these pictures of people posting it. Even Ullman is supposedly growing a stash. And he's not that. putting pictures up there. I want to think of yeah. But anyway, just, just for the record, the I2Y loophole clause states that so long as you were diagnosed under 40, an I2Yer forever shall you be. Excellent. Yeah, I think that's going to come in handy someday to be a, a young adult as long as I want to be. Well, for me too. I got I got uh, like you know a couple of days, five and a half years, four and a half <laughs> years left. So we'll figure that out. I got plenty of time. <laughs> so um, all right. So you're 39. Uh, six, eight years, six years ago, which, if my math is correct, puts you in at what 65 years old. Yeah, close. Yeah, okay. 45 now. Yep. So um, you have you have two daughters in high school. I do now. Yes. And 11-year-old twin sons, but the two daughters in high school aren't themselves twins either. They are not, although they uh, get accused of that more often than the twins do. My goodness. So four children yeah. in New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, okay. Right. <laughs> it's not that unusual here. So, but uh, let me ask you this, and how did you, aside from not dying, how did you decide to get involved with the activist world? Um, like, what got you into the TCCancerForums.com? And, I mean, Livestrong came calling afterwards, but I remember... Um, finding the TC forums, I was not not a TC survivor, but finding them in my just general research, and it's very popular. You have a lot of people on there. Yeah, we do. Yes, uh, over 800 active members now, over 3,000 registered. Although, of course, not all of those post regularly. 
Um, how did I do it? Um, that's I needed a really something. High percentage, actually. That's really <laughs> that's that. amazing. How, how many yeah. people are are active? I mean, you go to so many sites that have ten thousand people registered, and there are like five active people. So, <laughs> really great. Yeah. Well, I remember needing something myself, so I went out looking for help and uh, you know, found it on a couple of different sites. And uh, this is one where uh, I was asked to to join in and, and help grow things. And uh, you know, it's been I always say it's it's not good to see growth in a cancer forum, but uh, it's it's great that we're able to to help people. You know, I I'm curious. I read some statistics somewhere, and, and they they might even have uh, come from your website. I don't I don't know. Um, I think I saw it on Planet Cancer, but um, I I remember reading that there are only about maybe eight thousand cases of testicular cancer each year in the United States. And correct me if these numbers are wrong. Um, and close, yeah. I'm sorry, what? That's very close. Yeah, yeah. You see different yeah. numbers in different places, but somewhere around 8,400 cases in the U.S. Yep. Yeah, and that there are approximately only 8,000 board-certified urologists in the United States. Mm. And so I'm kind of curious about, you know, I've, I've heard that there are, that it's so infrequent that a urologist deals with multiple testicular cancer patients um, because the numbers are, are pretty small, and I guess these doctors are spread out across the country. And I'm kind of curious about, you know, when I think when most people are diagnosed with cancer, the first thing they want to do is find a really good doctor. And, and what I've done with my own cancers, you know, I ask my doctors, how many thyroid cancer patients have you seen? How often do you work with this? And I'm kind of curious to know, is it harder to find a doctor who has a lot of experience working with this disease given the statistics? I think it can be harder for sure. Uh, and it's a good thing that uh, the experts at uh, centers like uh, you know, IU and uh, Sloan are, are good about providing advice to, to other doctors who might not have seen it. And uh, early stage testicular cancer is pretty easy to treat. So, you know, you find a good urologist, you're probably okay. You get into more uh, advanced cases, it, uh, it's very, very important to find somebody who deals with a lot and to get expert advice. Mm-hmm. Would you, do you find that a lot of patients consult outside of their area to find a, a doctor, outside of their geographic area? Yeah, it depends on where you live for sure. Um, I think we find that most people that uh, are forum members are able to find a reasonably good urologist to help them out in the beginning. As soon as things you know, look like they might need some uh, expert help, it's good to, to go to you know, mm-hmm. New York or Indiana yeah. or one of those other uh, places that's, uh, that's got expert uh, uh, experience. Well, I, I'm going to continue on this series of wonky questions. <laughs> I have a couple of wonky ones. <laughs> I'll do my ones. best. Yeah. And then I have some less wonky ones. Um, you know, recently uh, there's been a lot of talk about with breast cancer, these extremely large studies that have been conducted that conclusively show that doing self-breast exams has no impact at all on improving mortality rates. It just, mm. it, you know, we've been relying on them for so long, but we're starting to see that maybe we need to focus our attention elsewhere because it's not actually helping to save lives. And I'm curious to know if there's been any studies done on the actual efficacy of doing self-exams for testicular cancer, if that makes an impact on the survival rate or not. Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I don't have the, I haven't seen studies that prove it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I do know that whether or not you do a monthly self-examination, it's really, really important to know what's normal for you and to recognize when something doesn't feel right and to not hope it goes away, to actually get to a doctor and talk about it. Uh, mm -hmm. If there's a, a lump, uh, a firmness, uh, you know, your testicle is just larger than it should be, um, don't just sit and wait. Um, you, you might not need to do a monthly self-examination to know that, uh, but when you find it, do something about it. Yeah. And how how do you get that message out there? I mean, I, you know, maybe because I'm a woman somehow or another, I feel like the whole world is plastered with information about self-breast exams, but I never hear anybody talking about self-exams for testicular cancer. So yeah, how do guys learn about this information? Maybe it's because right. I'm a guy that I don't hear this. <laughs> no, well, I, I'd never heard about it until I uh, was diagnosed myself. You know, I asked my urologist whether this was normal or not, whether mm -hmm. it was common or not, whether he'd ever seen somebody with my problem or not. Um, it's not something I learned about in advance. And, uh, you know, despite that, as soon as I noticed something was wrong, I did call a doctor about it. It mm -hmm. took a while to get diagnosed and treated. But uh, uh, it, it really is important to, to get that message uh, out. And there are organizations that, that try hard, um, Testicular Cancer Resource Center, um, is uh, the Sean Kimmerling Organization in New York. Um, so people are trying hard. Good. I will point out, if I can, about Sean Kimmerling. They um, did a public service announcement on YouTube, which, Scott, I know you're familiar with. They yeah. did two, actually, but one of them uh, was a guy, like a, I forget what it's called. It's called Checkem. So if you go to YouTube and you type in called Check and then apostrophe E-M, You'll yep. get it's all got over like 1.4 million views. It went viral, and it's a really funny parody about all the different euphemisms for testicles and yep. how you're supposed to check them. Um, and and the, again, like the question being, how do young men find out about this stuff? They find out about it through stupid things like that that actually have impact. And if you read the over 5,000 comments that are left, you'll see like I saw this, I checked, I had a lump, I go to the doctor, and now I'm a survivor more wow. often than you could possibly imagine because of one viral YouTube video done right with the right message to the right audience. Uh, and there's a second one there, which is a guy dressed up in a giant scrotum outfit, ice, uh, <laughs> ice skating in a hockey rink, and yes, some um, goalie comes and checks him into the wall, and it just says, check your balls. <laughs> it's a really, really clever video. Yeah. I, I think it's a great example of just this is how you reach people because traditional ways don't work. Yeah, that's great. I saw a juggling campaign earlier this year too. Guy was out, uh, you know, just juggling balls to to get that message out. Was that Jacob? Yeah, it might have been. I forget the name right now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, Jacob, um, a Jewish last name. I just saw him. Jack, those were the guys that juggled in Nashville. Yeah. yeah okay. What were their names? Uh, Ren and Stimpy. No. We <laughs> saw their act in Na no, Exactly. Not that. We saw their act. I don't, I, I don't remember you know exactly their name. Exactly, you're talking about. Yeah, two. They were both one statistically cancer survivor, and they juggle balls. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of them fell off my head. Yeah. Speaking of balls, uh, I'm really <laughs> curious to talk about prosthetics and, you know, how many guys who have a testicle removed choose that as an option. How common is that? And and what are some of the factors that people use when trying to determine if that's the route they want to go. Yeah, that comes up uh, pretty frequently on the forums. Uh, I, I asked my urologist about that when I was uh, you know, uh, diagnosed, and he discouraged it. Um, I was married and already had four kids, and 
Um, I went along with his recommendation not to. Um, but a lot of younger guys um, have a harder time with that decision and, and weighing the pros and cons. And uh, it seems to be pretty even of those who, who do and don't uh, what they think afterward. Uh, some are very happy with it, and some don't like the feel of something that's foreign mm -hmm. uh, as a replacement. So it seems to be a very personal decision. Is there much conversation on the forum about sex and dating? Um, there's a fair amount, yeah. yeah. And, and what are some of the comments that you hear and things that people are talking about? Oh, I didn't prepare for that question. Ah, <laughs> fun. This is the cancer show. We love talking about sex here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not used to it in my house. Uh, All right. Well, we'll oh, have, my have goodness. To Eric <laughs> you know. I'm not comfortable talking about it, but I like listening in. <laughs> uh, well, I would invite you to go out to TCC. talk about sex and dating if you want. Yeah, yeah. And definitely invite you to go out to the forum and uh, check it out. It's, uh, it's all public, so. And it just, how does testicular cancer impact fertility? Um, it it uh, has very limited impact if you have just one testicle removed. Obviously, for those who are the, the limited population who end up with cancer in both testicles, uh, after that you're infertile. But uh, right, do you know what, how how common that is to have it? Uh, it's, both? Yeah, it, it's pretty pretty low. It's about four four three to five percent somewhere in that uh -huh. range. Mhm. Mm and is there a lot of awareness done about fertility and sperm banking and things like that for those patients, or is it so rare that it's not usually talked about that much? Yeah. Um, no, it's talked about fairly frequently. Uh -huh. And, of course, uh, treatment, uh, chemotherapy, um, can have an impact on fertility as well. So even if you do still have a remaining right. testicle but you've been through chemotherapy, it's still an issue. Um, certainly those who uh, are about to go uh, undergo treatment are advised to bank sperm, to uh, consider the, the live-on kit or a local sperm bank if you can find one. Yeah, well, you know, we're thrilled that you're here, but I think that we are going to have to bring Eric on so we can grill him about sex because I'm not getting <laughs> off the gum. <laughs> yeah, I'm All right, I'm, well, I'm I'll stay on and listen then. This, you know, topic until we can have a good, hearty sex conversation. So. Okay, well, I'll definitely want to hear that. So. Excellent. Well, it's great <laughs> talking to you. All right. Very good. Scott, are you Thanks going so to be much. in Austin? Uh, when? Are you going to, to the Live Strong Young Adult Alliance meeting this week? Uh, I wish that I were. No, I won't be there, but I uh, can't wait to hear all about it. I was just in Austin for the uh, Live Strong Challenge ride for the Roses weekend, and oh. uh, it's my, one of my favorite cities. You're one of those athlete people, right? Okay. Yeah, into the <laughs> exercising crap. Yeah. Right, right. Well, good luck to you. Please stay in touch. Uh, you're an amazing guy. You do great work, and congratulations on everything. Uh, thanks so much. Talk to you soon. All right. Scott Joy, everybody. <laughs> And now, Eric Chanteau is a three-time national champion, a four-time NCAA team champion, a 2008 Olympian, world record holder for the 4x100 medley relay, an American record holder of the 100 and 200 breaststroke. You gotta love this guy. Testicular cancer survivor, listener on by an I2I advocate. It's taken a year and a half to get this guy on the show, but we're glad he's here. And he's causing havoc everywhere he goes. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the one and only Eric Shantou. 
Hello, guys. my brother from another mother. How are you guys doing? Hey, Eric. How you doing, man? Oh, I'm hanging in there. You know, can't complain. Um, I was uh, telling uh, Jack before, I've had the privilege, actually we spoke to you earlier, I had the privilege of being two Olympic athletes in uh, the span of 48 hours. I was going to say, uh, it's going to be a good week for you. It is going to be a good week. You're going to somewhat, potentially, slightly ever more, possibly increase my interest in athletics. <laughs> but I met Dan Jensen, um, who was the figure skater. Oh, you did? Who lost speed his, uh, skater. Speed skater. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's Connor Hamilton, right. Uh, Dan Jensen was the, the, the speed skater who lost his uh, sister to, uh, I think it was leukemia. And uh, he had a, a series of very... Uh, emotional mistakes that went on, um, but he went, went on to finally win the gold in 1994. Um, but I have nothing but the utmost respect. I make fun of athletes because I'm just just, just so lethargic. Uh, but I have the utmost respect for all the hard work you guys put in uh, to that stuff. And I, I I have to tell you, your story made huge headlines, as you know, uh, last summer uh, with your decisions. And uh, I know Carol had some questions, but I just wanted you to, you know, for our listenership here, we're all big fans of yours. What was it like to be diagnosed with cancer and then put your priorities in order? Like, were you, this was more important to you, and this is what meant the most to you. What was that decision like? Um, you know, it's, it's um, looking back on it now, I, I guess I kind of have a little bit better perspective of what it was like because, you know, when I was going through it all, it all happened so fast. So, um, you know, I, I didn't really kind of have stopped time to really stop and think about it but you know looking back on it now like I said I have no regrets about the decisions I made and and the course of action that I took and and um, you know I think uh, all things considered it it really worked out as best as it possibly could Um, you know so I'm I'm glad I made the decision to to delay surgery and and go on and uh, and compete in Beijing last year yeah I mean and and like I said I think you 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 probably you got a lot of heat for that from some people, didn't you? Sure, I did. You know, it's not the um, it's not the obvious uh, advice you get from a doctor, and uh, you know, none of my doctors initially gave me that advice. Um, and you know, when when something like that gets in the press, they're gonna take it and run with it. And um, you know, thankfully enough, uh, probably ninety nine percent of the press stuff was uh, was still real positive and, and very supportive. But you know, you're, you're gonna have uh, people that are are not agreeing with your decisions and things like that. But, you know, w- what I would say to those people are, you know, I-, I was under the closest medical scrutiny you could be under. I mean, I was having weekly checks uh, for, you know, my, my, uh, my tumor markers in my blood, weekly CT scans, and if, if any little change happened in my body, you know, it's, trust me, we were, we were going to know about it. And, um, you know, <clears throat> that, all that being said, it's, it's, uh, it just goes back to, you know, I, I know that I made the right decision, and, um, you know, the, the army of doctors that I had in my corner were, were, were well aware of what was going on, and, and they made me well aware of, of the things that I was risking, you know. Um, so I, I, knew, I knew I was in a tough spot, but at the same time I had a whole lot of information. So, it, uh, you know, I had, I had a lot of good help. Carol? Hey, I wrote a blog post today. This is interesting to be talking about this now. My blog post that I wrote today was about, you know, have you ever disobeyed your doctors? And, you know, I think there's a big difference between disobeying your doctors or going against their orders for some, you know, emotional reason or some kind of screw you reason versus 
um, doing it in a way that's very highly educated, and it sounds like even in delaying your care, you're probably getting way better care than many people who have surgery immediately and start treatment immediately. And, and you know, hats off to you for, for making such educated decisions. It, it sounds like you went about it in a really, really smart way. Um, I'm curious to know, a, a few months ago, there were a lot of really negative comments made about Steve Jobs. You know, he had pancreatic cancer, and he was very private about it. Um, he wasn't interested in becoming a spokesperson. He wasn't interested in being in the spotlight or using his position as a well-known figure to you know, raise money or raise awareness for the cancer cause. And a lot of patients really criticized him for this. But the major foundation that works with pancreatic issues said, you know, we think it's great that he's showing that cancer can be a private experience too. You know, here's a public figure who's being private about this. And I'm curious to know whether or not you – you know, have always wanted to use your platform as a public figure to talk about testicular cancer. Have there been times when you've ever considered making this a more private experience than a public one? It's actually kind of funny that you ask that because, you know, I I would never criticize him for making it a private matter because, I mean, it is such a private thing, especially, um, you know, when, when you're sometimes, you know, in some situations in a fight for your life and, I mean, from what I was kind of saying earlier, you know, everything happened so quickly to me last summer that my decision to, you know, come out and go public with my story was more for the fact of having control over how it got out because people were going to find out. So it was it was more based on the decision of, well, I'd rather, um, you know, me and, and my family and friends and, and the, the USA Swim Team in general have control over, you know, how this gets portrayed and, and how it gets out and, I'll be honest. I didn't really, I didn't really have, I guess, a good grasp on, on, um, you know, what my life would be like after that. You know, mm-hmm. as far as becoming an awareness advocate and kind of being put on that, on that platform. Now, you know, thankfully enough, I've really embraced the role and I, I really love doing it. But, you know, I really had no idea that it was going to really come to the level that it has over the past year. You know, when I made that decision last June. So it, it kind of skyrocketed out of nowhere, and, and it's, you know, it, it's it's great, and I love doing it, but at the same time, you know, you kind of have to sit back every once in a while and, and just really kind of put things into perspective and, and uh, you know, take a deep breath. Yeah. You know, yeah. Eric, this I'm, is oh, – sorry, go ahead. You know, what, sorry, um, but what I'm, you know, what I'm still learning is that I'm really, really new and, and pretty uneducated in this in this whole cancer world, you know. I mean, I was – I was going out talking about my story two months after surgery, even less than that. So, um, you know, what, what's been good for me is just kind of getting a little time under my belt and, and you know, talking to people like you guys um, who, you know, have been in this world for, for years and years now. And so that's that's kind of helped me a lot is just uh, kind of diving into it and, and getting the information where I can. Yeah, Erica, this is Jack. Um, you know, last year when we met in Austin, you know, I had said to you uh, – that I really commended you for, you know, doing what you, like, what was best for you. And I, I know you got a lot of flack about, like, you know, like in the press or whatever, just in, uh, in, in debates is like, you know, he, he, he should forget the Olympics and go into treatment. And other people are like, well, he should go to the Olympics and then do treatment or whatever. So there's like a lot of people that I'm sure were tugging you in different directions. And, you know, everybody has the right to make their own decisions and do what's best for them. And I just want to, uh, you know, commend you on that. And, you know, certainly I'm glad that, 
you know, nothing bad happened because, you know, with, with putting off treatment, you know, you're, you're, you're risking the chance of something, you know, becoming worse than, than it is. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that you're a good example of, you know, uh, patient advocacy on a personal level where it's like, you know, I'm doing what's best for me. Sure. And that's, you know, a lot of what I, I kind of preach and, and, and about now is that, you know, it can be really, really intimidating, especially for, you know, someone who's younger. I mean, I sat in the doctor's office when I was 24 years old and, you know, had him tell me I had testicular cancer and, and you don't, you know, I hadn't, I'll be honest, you know, aside of just going in to see a doctor every now and then to, you know, get some antibiotics or just an annual checkup or whatever, you don't really have a whole lot of experience with them. And, you know, I just felt like I had a loss of control at the time. So, you know, what, what I kind of advocate now is, you know, even when you sit in a doctor's office and have a diagnosis like that, you know, you're still in control of your life. You still have decisions that, that you can make. Um, you know, doctors are only there to, to, you know, they really work for you. Um, and that's that's really easy to forget, I think, when you're in that situation. So, you know, that's kind of a, a point that I picked up on pretty quickly, but it was kind of a, a lesson learned the hard way, I guess. Yeah, that's that's such an important point to make and one that is, you know, in some ways I think that young adults, it's challenging for us and that it can be really intimidating and we've never been in these medical situations before, many of us. But I also think that we have this edge that we weren't raised with this, like, you know, archaic ethos that you can't challenge a doctor or that doctors are God. And so in some ways I think that we have an edge over people who are our parents or grandparents' age who wouldn't really dream of of questioning a doctor and, and you know, a- asking to participate in their medical care in, in the way that you certainly have. Um, now, I don't know if you were listening before you came on, but, you know, <laughs> sex is a big issue on this show here. Oh, he was listening, um, right. and, there, and there it is, yeah. <laughs> so, so here it is. Um, I... You know, I I am not going to put you on the spot by asking questions. I'm just going to you an open stage here. <laughs> chat about chat about how, like, having testicular cancer has either changed or not changed your identity. You know, being guy, your sexual identity, that kind of stuff. The floor is all yours. Oh man, well, where where could I run with this? You know, well, it, it made you lighter for sure. <laughs> you swimming any faster because of it? Well, you know, I, I kind of uh, uh, have to compensate for one side when I swim. You know, it's almost like I'm swimming a little bit crooked. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's funny, you know, because obviously that that part of your body for a guy is kind of sacred, I guess, for lack of a better word. And um, you know, when something like this happens, it's sure it can be traumatic if you want it to be. Um, but you know, from from a I don't what's a good way of putting it, just from an identity standpoint, sure. I mean, I'm going to wear, um, as my sister, sister-in-law sister told me, um, you know, I'm going to have the cancer badge for the rest of my life. But it's not going to be the only thing that defines me, and it's, you know, the fact that, um, you know, the fact that I, I had a testicle removed isn't going to be something that defines me as, as a man or mm-hmm. or as a person for that matter, you know, and, and I, you know, I'm I'm happy to say from a from a relationship standpoint, it's had you know no effect. So, um, you know, it's it's just one of those things that I think it it only it only affects you on a, on a personal level if uh, if you let it, you know. And and that's not saying that that this has been easy. Um, you know, I've definitely had to learn to live with a little bit uh, different and new identity. But um, you know, it's just uh, it takes time, and it's it's something that uh, you know I'm I'm definitely going to do. All right. 
the, the guys are always like jabbing all the other guys are like silent right now. They're like, whoa. I'm just looking at Haley's comments in the chat room. Yeah, I'm seeing Haley's comments too, and I'm, I'm trying to keep it, you know, PG for her, and I think my parents are listening too. So, you know. Oh, hi, Mom and Dad. Okay, Hello. so we're going to keep this clean. We're going to keep this clean. We're going to no crotch talk here. Well, I got too that. late for that because like, did anyone not listen to Brian's monologue? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as we were talking earlier, you know, I'm a swimmer who had testicular cancer. I, I don't really have a whole lot of secrets left, you know. <laughs> so true. So um, do you guys have any questions before we wrap up? I, I am, uh, you know, I might have one or two more questions. Of course, yeah, Eric, when are, the, are, you, are you in the trials for the next Olympics? God, how does that work? I, I know I was nothing about say, you're, you're getting three years ahead of me. Um, no, the way, the way it works um, right now is, Basically, Olympic trials won't be until just before the London Games, just like it was this past time. So anything as far as the Olympics are concerned really don't go on for another three years. Okay. Um, so what you do is you basically look at your year um, as it relates to national teams. So this past year, um, we had the, the big national team was World Championships out in Rome. Um, what I'll do now is – the for. For 2010, the big meet will be the Pan Pacific Games, which will also be qualifying for the next year's World Championships in Shanghai in 2011. So you kind of got to take it year by year and, and the national team trips as they come up, and really they all come up during the summer. So, you know, right now I'm kind of staring down the barrel of a eight-month training cycle that's going to be pretty hellacious. And when did that start? Oh, it started probably – for me it started – I would say October, beginning of October, maybe end of September. Wow. All right. So you got to work it out for you. Yeah. And, and you know, all that being said, it is preparation for, you know, obviously the very long-term term goal and the, the big light at the end of the tunnel is the Olympic trials and the Olympic Games three years from now. Wow. All right. Very cool. Now, are we going to see you in Austin this week? Are you coming back? Yeah. I think uh, I, I heard the – the council is going to be here, and uh, Wednesday, you know, Wednesday may, to Friday. Yeah. Yeah, I, I may or may not be around. Uh, we'll just have to see. That's a great answer. I may or may we're not just, be around. Yeah. We're, we're just He's avoiding us. That. How, how about that? <laughs> and I, I do want to tell the audience that Eric, you know, is an Olympic swimmer, but his big claim to fame is he was the one that tipped all of us off that the chat room for Black Talk Radio is censored. Yes. And that if you type a bad word in there, it comes up as stars. Yes. Which I which I, I totally found that out, but I was definitely not the one who ran with it. So, uh, <laughs> last time I was in there, someone else got on my screen name and, and decided to uh, to run with it. But yes, I did uh, I did figure that one out. <laughs> yeah, and then we also figure out ways around it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like you can right, use like exactly. you know asterisks and you know other uh, other things. Fabulous. So <laughs> so well, Eric. Um, I I owe our paths cross again. I wish you all the luck with everything. Um, keep on uh, plugging the young adult movement and and the whole testicle-tacular stuff that you do. Um, and if anybody wants to follow Eric on Twitter, it's at Chanteau, correct? Yeah, at Chanteau. That's correct, yeah. Good yeah. stuff, good stuff. I got on board the whole Twitter wagon, so. Yes, you, know, you did. I mean, yeah, well, it was interesting yeah, reading about, like, your time trials and world record settings and training schedule. You know, it's fun. Well, and it's funny because I was totally one of those people that when I first heard about it, actually, um, Heidi, you know, over Planet Cancer, she told me about it when we were having lunch one day, and I totally thought it was the dumbest thing ever. I was like, why would I ever want to do that? You know, it, it just makes no sense to me. But I actually got on and tried it, and, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's, it's pretty fun keeping up with everybody. 
Well, uh, good luck to you. Keep in touch. Keep tweeting. Um, do your thing. You're a good man. We're very, very proud of you and, uh, and all that good stuff. Oh, and right, you're, you're in Atlanta, right? No, I'm in Austin. My family's in Atlanta. Oh, okay. His brother's in, in Atlanta. Oh, that's where it is. Okay. And yeah. Haley. And Haley. Right. Hi, yeah, Haley. Haley. Haley's in, uh, in Atlanta with my brother. All righty. Well, you take care of yourself and be well and, uh, and, uh, and all that good stuff. All right. Thanks a lot, take guys. Care, Eric. Great talking to you. Eric Chantel, everybody. <laughs> Olympic swimmer. Sure. You know, I was going to ask him about uh, uh, Michael Phelps to see if, uh, you know, if he's really like a nice guy or a freaking person or like, because the guy, the guy he likes like the a, party, right? He likes the, yeah, he likes the party. He looks, the guy looks like a manta ray. <laughs> a manta okay. Ray? I guess he kind of does. I mean, he's just like, a, I mean, he's like genetically mutated to, to swim more like a fish, which is why he's so... I know they're good friends. I just uh, because I don't want to take focus away from him, but you know, I, it's just funny that he knows Michael Phelps and uh, all that Phelpsian interest. I, I'm running out of ideas. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess that's uh, I guess that's tonight's show. What do you say, guys? Wrapping up? Uh, I guess so. We'll see yeah, you I actually, in in honor of our testicular cancer show, I need to go watch some football right now. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I do. Are, My Steelers are playing tonight. They're playing the have, Broncos. I've already missed the first hour. This is it's, how dedicated I am. To, it's seven to three uh, at the start of the third quarter. Seven to three. Who? Pittsburgh. Steelers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. That's right. You got your Pittsburgh jeans still in you, Carol. Oh yeah, I certainly. I thought you do. didn't have TV. I don't. I'm going down to Hamburger Mary's, the gay sports bar down the street from me. <laughs> <laughs> Hamburger Mary's. Wow. Yeah. Well, I guess that's better than being at Matthew Zachary's. Yes, apparently. All right. Well, uh, you got Carol, you're off next week. We'll see. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Uh, Jack, um, actually, you're staying at my house on Tuesday, so I can't get rid of you. Yay. But this no, is the, maybe, maybe we can examine oh, your testicular cancer. Uh-huh. You are next week. Next week's your nutrition. You're on the show. Okay, so we'll see you back here next week, Carol. You're yeah. not coming to Live Strong Alliance, are you? Oh, hell no. I'm staying in my cozy little home and <laughs> writing. Are you kidding me? Of course. Of yeah. course. I'm a hermit. I'm let, let you guys do all the partying. I, I've all got right. my own little thing going on over here. We'll think of you fondly. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to say one thing to Haley. And Haley Chanteau, who is Eric's sister-in-law, um, her and I met at Can't Make a Dream last May. And Haley, I just want to say, nighty poo, don't poo your nighty. Okay. That's something all that right. she would tell us every night at Can't Make a Dream. And um, I just had to throw it out there. Okay, that was just for you, Haley. You've been a good sport tonight. We love you. Nighty poo, don't poo your nighty. All righty. Well, with that said, uh, and and no. How can you top that? You can't. My segue is just going to. Good night, folks. Here's our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, folks, that's tonight's show. I hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our guests, Brian LaBelle, Scott Joy, Eric Chanteau. Next week, Nutrition, Part 1, with Kathy Buetti, author of Restless in the City, Natalie Ledesma, Oncology Dietitian, and Greta McCare, Oncology Dietitian. If you've missed any of our previous broadcasts, check out the archives at 
stupidcancershow.com or subscribe to our podcast at itunes.i2y.com. If you don't already have Carol's book, Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s, it is available wherever books are sold. Remember, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. We'll see you all back here next week, my friends, live from the chemo deck. Jack Rupert, Tara Rosenthal, Captain Stubing, Anna Brower, and I will wish you all a great evening. Who the hell's Anna Brower? Go to bed, Anna Brower. Fuck her out. Smile.